Greetings, building science enthusiasts, and welcome back to the Building Science Podcast. This episode is brought to you by the Humid Climate Conference. Back in 2015, the Austin chapter of Passive House Alliance US was thinking about how to get more attention to the FIAS Plus 2015 standard in humid climates. And so the thought emerged, what if we put on a conference? I'm proud to tell you that this is an unmissable conference. It's a unique gathering of the best building science minds who are ready to talk seriously about passive house and humid climates. This event is entirely volunteer organized, supported by Passive House Institute US, and sponsored by some of the best product manufacturers and industry consultants in the country. And it's sold out in its first try, but it's happening again this year, May 21st and 22nd, with a great speaker lineup. We're talking Joe Stebrick, Lou Harriman, Richard Corsi, Matthew Tanteri, and the list literally goes on and on and on. Find out more at humidclimateconference.org. Early bird tickets are limited and they're selling quickly, so don't miss out and be left wondering. Register today. That's humidclimateconference.org for tickets. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. Should I do the thing where I do welcome to the Blink Science Welcome to this. Welcome to the Building Science To the Building Science Podcast. Welcome to the Building Science Podcast. Bringing the human factor to architecture and design. Brought to you by Positive Energy in Austin, Texas. Okay, welcome back, everybody. Welcome to the Building Science Podcast. I'm Christoph Irwin, here as always with our producer, Miguel. Hey, everyone. And we should go ahead and take this opportunity to let you know that this episode gets a little headier than usual. So feel free to slow down, hit pause, rewind. And if you really don't understand something and want to know what we were talking about, shoot me an email. And I have the great good fortune today to be with Zoltan Negi, professor at UT, who's been on the show once before. And dun, 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 the famous Kiel Mo from Harvard. So say hello, Kiel, and welcome. Hello, everybody. And say welcome. It's great to be here. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Yeah. So yeah, we were just talking a little before the show, and I was um, a little bit stumped on how to introduce you. So I will pass that job to you. Could you tell people who you are? And yeah, so I'm an architect, and I guess I'm a professor by that's my day job. But I'm trained as an architect. I build my own buildings, but I also write a lot of books. But for me, those are all deeply connected things because, you know, as I've built buildings, I've learned how wrong the building industry is, and that's <laughs> affected my research. And usually when I'm putting a roof on a building or something, that's when I have clarity about the thesis for the book or something like the next book. So they're all deeply connected. Yeah. How do you find time to do all this? I mean, be well, an architect, a professor, and yeah. write books. Again, they're all connected, I think. If I was only doing one of them, I would have less time, I think, somehow, you know, like... Um, Interesting. It's, yeah, they all, they all, it's because they all feed e into each other and motivate each other that I can, you know... And, like, you know, for, like, building my own buildings, it would take me longer to do a set of drawings for one of these buildings that most contractors wouldn't want to touch anyway, so I would, I would lose time just being an architect. But mm -hmm. being an architect who builds their own buildings... I can do things thermally with materials or energy or whatever. Um, so it, I, you know, it would be impossible for me to only do two or th you know one or two of the uh, right. jobs. Right, I get it. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so you don't have a time machine that you're stretching time <laughs> with. 
I don't know. I'm also, I think I take more naps than anybody I know. <laughs> really? Like, it's all connected, you know, yeah. Uh. One of the books that I really enjoyed was Convergence, and it was this sort of this convergence of building systems, thinking about the outcome. Um, actually, before I say that, I want to interject that the um, bemused smirk, and even then some, the uh, sense of like disheartenment that you feel toward the way we currently deliver buildings to ourselves, that was one of my biggest connections to you, is like, yeah, we spend all our lives in these buildings and we treat them like visual, spatial, economic assets. Why is that? Yeah. Um, when did you first have that insight? Can you remember? Was there a time when you were like, what the heck? Well, I remember, you know, like I, in high school, I worked for like a family friend who ran a business installing radiant systems. Interesting. In Colorado. And, you know, even at that point, I sort of like, I knew there was a profound difference between these houses that were just blowing air around and these other houses that had these, you know, warm surfaces. <laughs> and that was just like kind of, that meant nothing necessarily at the time. But then when I got to architecture school and was taught how to, you know, calculate air conditioning systems and things like that, mm -hmm. I started to understand that it made no sense and that the professors made no sense, you know. Um, and the, my, I think it was our first environmental <laughs> what do you think about systems that, course. Um, it's true. <laughs> you know, we did like six, or, I don't know, like three or four weeks of air conditioning calculations of just basically how to move air around a building, right, and how to heat and cool a building with air. And then the next, you know, sequence in the course was about, you know, envelopes and insulation and that sort mm -hmm. of thing. And the first thing this professor said was, you know, air is this really good insulator, and it's really about, you know, kind of how do you design it. And I just raised my hand. I said, you know, why did we just spend three weeks, you know, doing calculations for how to move an insulator around a building to heat? Like, it doesn't make any sense, right? <laughs> and uh, there was no answer. And so I knew at that moment that there was, like, the kind of standard ideology and, like, you know, sort of textbook, um, mm -hmm. you know, s state of knowledge that there's something really screwy there, that it had more to do with economics or some other history. So... Um, yeah, I'd say like all of the books are about answering the question of why do we build the way we do. Okay, so get ready to take a few notes here. There are some topics that you might need to do a little research on. So that we can propose better alternatives. Because it's not, I mean, these, I, there are much better ways to build, whether you're thinking about material ecologies. I've added a link to a phenomenal paper from MIT on material ecology in the show notes. So have some fun reading that one. Or human comfort or energetics of urbanization but and we've also linked to the profile for professor neil brenner at the harvard graduate school of design who is an urban theory professor and talks a lot about the energetics of urbanization you know i think the kind of standard pedagogies don't set up that kind of thinking mm -hmm. um, for the most part and as you can tell pretty quick we're going to start diving into the way that we teach things and why we teach the things that we do when it comes to thinking about construction, design, and how all of those systems wrap together. There's good exceptions, of course, I'm sure Zoltan's there. <laughs> I agree to uh, what Kiel said. That's Dr. Zoltan Nagy of the University of Texas, good friend of the podcast. Um, it's, it's, and it's the same from the engineering perspective. So when you look at how we teach HVAC design, how we perform, how we practice it, it's, it's literally designing air delivery systems without thinking about what, what the building does or how the building is constructed. And uh, yeah, as, as a practical example, when I had my HVAC changed a couple of weeks ago, the, the guy came in and walked through and said, okay, X amount of square footage is 2.5 tons. Thank you very much. 
and that's about how it was and then a week later they came and put it in but but there was no question of how is this building insulated or not are there any cracks in the windows that you need to deal with um, how do you even feel in the house nobody asked me that yeah yeah uh, we feel cold when it's cold outside <laughs> I have to yeah, I was about up. to say how is your comfort it's horrible it? it's I have to crank up the AC just so the cold walls are are Overruled, basically. Yeah, so then you have cold air in a hot enclosure. <clears throat> yeah, or, or the hot opposite. air in a cold yeah, enclosure, or the opposite, mm-hmm. and it's just, and then with the cracks, it just goes through the windows, right? Mm-hmm. So it's mm-hmm. like we're losing it. Yeah. So the the mission statement here it was on the wall. I don't know if you saw it walking in, but it's design around people. A good building follows, and I want to ask you, Kyle, when you hear that design around people, a good building follows. What is a good building? What makes a building good? And I know there's m- multiple layers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess my, my current uh, answer to that uh, type of question is that uh, a good building is a magnificent building. Um, and magnificence <laughs> is a uh, special state of appearance. It's a splendid state of appearance. So I'm interested in how buildings appear in the world, and that could be how it appears to our body and our physiology. So that, in a sense, I would agree with that mission statement. Um, but I'm also deeply interested in how buildings just literally come to appear in the world, like all of their kind of global material flows and like literally how an object appears in a city or something like that. So I would also say like, you know, I don't know, design for, or like good buildings are designed around planetary urbanization. Yes, you heard that correctly. We're talking about planetary urbanization, meaning the strategies we use here on Earth could be used on any other planet which, if we're being honest, might be necessary in the near future. As much as they are bodies or something. What, so, what do you mean by that? Planetary well, just, urbanization. Um, that, that, let's say, all the materials in this room, all this stuff came from somewhere, mm-hmm. and we have to be designing those sort of value chains as much as we're designing radiant transfer or something like that. Beautiful. Like the Howard Odom. Yeah. Yeah. And so we need, we, need, we, know, we need all of that. And, uh, and what I like about that is nobody has any expertise you know, kind of looking at all of that together. Uh, but I think that's what a good building mm-hmm. industry would be doing. Mm-hmm. Like Design. an ecosystem approach. Yeah, yeah. yeah, absolutely. It's definitely an ecosystem-based uh, view of things. So, yeah, so I think there's there's many ways to think about, like, how buildings appear, again, whether it's physiology or construction ecology, et cetera. But I, I think they're all sort of important. So that's how I'm summarizing, like, what a I like it. good building but for me, like good buildings, if you look at all those things seriously, thick, massive buildings that last for a couple thousand years are mm-hmm. my favorites. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. yeah, so this this is a shack technology structure that we're yeah. in here in, in Austin, by the Which way. Which also, uh, that would be the But my, it's been here for a hundred years. That yeah. would be my next best thing. It's like basically shacks that last a long time. Okay, that, well, there I you mean, go. You're in a hundred-year-old shack. Yeah, yeah. It'd be, but it's either, but we're kind of... We do the exact wrong thing. We design basically like 60-year buildings or 30-year houses, but with the kind of construction ecology intensity of, you know, buildings that should be lasting 300 years or something mm-hmm. like that. So we're, that's where our, our kind of, you know, that's where our biggest flaws are in our energetics, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah. Can I dig in a little bit on that? Is, is there a metric that comes to mind when you say construction ecology intensity? Or can you maybe unpack that idea a little bit? Yeah, well, it's, I mean, it's the, um, it is Howard Odom's uh, energy methodology. Mm-hmm. So That's how right. I keep track of that. If you want to hear more about Howard Odom's energy methodology and how it applies to architecture, go back and check out our episode with Dr. William Bram. It's a great one. And if you 
I mean, what a, a colleague of mine and I did a very intense um, energy evaluation of a building at the University of Florida, the construction management building there. And if you really shake it all out, um, you know, that study showed that, you know, 80% of the energy associated with the building is construction and maintenance and demolition. And only about 20% is operational energy, heating, wow. lighting, cooling, and that sort of thing. So um, the energy wow. methodology is good for just establishing like which orders of magnitude matter with the building's energetics, and so therefore which one should we be working on. That's to say, there's a couple ways to interpret that. One of which is to say, do whatever you want with that 20%, you know, like, but definitely make people comfortable. Don't mm -hmm. get into some extreme passive health thing where people are barely being comfortable. Because what happens if you go, let's say that 20% becomes 10%, now you're, you know, because you're usually using a lot of construction energy to make that 10% efficiency. Yeah. So now you're at a 90-10 split, and so you've just exasperated, you know, the kind of construction yeah, yeah. Ecology, ecology problem. So to some degree, I'm kind of like, you know, I think there's pretty good knowledge out there about that 20% about, you know, if you and if you're halfway sensible about siting a building and basic climatic design, stuff yeah. like that, then we're, we're pretty good. Then pretty much everything else, we need to put a lot more time and effort and, you know, intellectual rigor into that, you know, that 80% that mm -hmm. basically nobody's yeah. thinking about and that the building industry just treats as an externality. Mm -hmm. which is, that's, yeah. Yeah, I love it. I, I love the idea in Odom that the, the functional role of a building, um, you know, the inputs are electricity, water, gas, the internet, and the outputs, you know, there's a sewer line going out, but the main output of a building is a healthy, functional, thriving human being. Yeah. And, and the human occupant of that building is actually the most, the, the highest embodied energy material there, right? Like me, I ate food this morning that came from disparate places and I'm wearing clothes that, you know. So we don't, we don't realize, oh, there's darn good reason to take care of the occupants because that's what it's all about. Absolutely, yeah. And if those occupants cure cancer or... There you oh, yeah. the next, Then, like, that's where... That's what's really good about the energy methodology is tracking all the feedbacks too, because mm -hmm. it's one thing if that body that you're tempering is just making another stupid Britney Spears video. Or if they're actually doing something meaningful in terms of feedback, mm -hmm. those are huge, you know, like, the, the construction ecology changes immensely around that. Yeah, so, that's a great way to uh, think about it. Yeah. Technology is not the constraint, right? So for instance, on the good building metaphor, right, you'd say rain, air, vapor, thermal control layers and you know, the proper materials to do that, they exist you know, in multi, multiple dimensions. So technology is not the constraint to a good building, which is a magnificent building, which is a splendid building. What is the constraint? Why is it that the building approach is still not optimized to deliver us magnificent or good buildings. Yeah, I mean, technology is neither the constraint nor the answer per se. Like, you know, there can be technologies involved with some sort of more reasonable, sane, you know, uh, framework uh, for how to approach buildings uh, or building uh, more generally. Um, I, I think that's mostly epistemological for those of you who may not be as nerdy when it comes to philosophy as i am that's what i studied in school epistemology is the study that deals with the nature and theory of knowledge itself that is like we have the wrong kind of structures of knowledge like we've we just we've simply been working with the wrong concepts mm -hmm. they've been unquestioned for 
you know, Boom. in some cases a century, in other cases half a century, in other cases, you know, hundreds of years. Um, so a lot of my work, I feel, and a lot of the books are focused on just articulating, you know, what I think are better concepts that are much more valid, both in terms of thermodynamics, ecology, but also in terms of the uh, political economy of buildings. Okay, so there's another term to unpack there, political economy, which was a philosophy and economic study that was developed in the 18th century that looked at the production and trade as they relate to laws, customs, governments, and sort of thinking about national income and uh, wealth distribution mm-hmm. um, and that's it's hard to take all of that on but i think we have to take all of that on cause, yeah absolutely um, you know we have too too many people that are you know just consider themselves to be engineers or just architects or but there's a lot that's being missed by those kinds of fake divisions yeah or, you know, that's a great way to say it fake divisions yeah, or artificial divisions mm-hmm. yeah. yeah i was going to put in the one one point not to forget is, or to, to consider, is the reason we're here is mostly for marketing reasons, right? The whole industry of putting ACs into buildings is not because people ask for it, it's because colleague or, or carrier and his colleagues try to sell refrigeration techniques and then that's it. And all of a sudden we have to all have it in the buildings, even though for thousands of years mm-hmm. we'll live just fine without it. Right. Really. Yeah. And even now, in Alberta, Canada, they're putting in, in air Canada. conditioners now. <laughs> and even even that we don't need it and then we don't actually have to have it. We can't live without it. And yeah. it's Yeah. And that's all marketing. That's the power of marketing. Yeah. yeah. That's no, interesting. I'm, I'm selling. Writing yeah. a um a his basically an obituary for the environmental control systems course, which is the kind of... An uh, obituary for yeah, environmental um, control. It's the, the course that every architect, it's like, you know, the required course sequence of courses that architects take to learn about mm-hmm. something about environmental control systems. Like Don't you teach that course? Yeah, my, my yeah. wife in yeah. architecture school is teaching that, and exactly. I teach the same one for the engineers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you're writing the obituary. Yeah, <laughs> and it's the, the kind of punchline for it is that it was basically, it was introduced like in the mid-50s, early 60s. Mm-hmm. It's very, you know, pretty easy to identify when that came. They were basically borrowing that term from NASA, which was the... And environmental control system was the system for, you know, space capsule flight, you know. And so with a lot of hubris, architects and engineers sort of borrowed that term thinking it's, you know, it's like sounds cool, like popular mechanics or something like that. (laughs) Um, But the irony, the kind of punchline of the obituary is that that course that's been taught for, you know, 50, 60 years has taught us nothing about environment control or systems, which are like three of the most important terms <laughs> of the 20th century. So, um, and so it's a, it's a kind of, it, it, I'm trying to give people the kind of um, material they need to, you know, help structure a different curriculum because there's just a lot of, um, in, the, in the case of these courses, pedagogical mm-hmm. momentum, like in these schools, mm-hmm. it's just in... Like the you know the the board that accredits you know schools of architecture still requires that and still requires that name, um, and it's just you know we have to move beyond that. Otherwise, we again we won't get to the right kind of concepts and frameworks and practices if we don't have the pedagogy right. So, it's important to address it at the kind of pedagogical level, but there's also a lot of things in practice. I took a class in superconductivity in grad school, and basically materials that we use as conductors, they have something like a lattice structure. These semiconductors have a lattice structure. And you're basically wanting to move energy through this lattice. And to do it efficiently, all the lattice nodes need to move harmoniously at the same time in the right way. So what we would need to change the architecture industry is 
you know, so all the accrediting accrediting bodies, all the curriculum developers, all the professors, the students asking for these schools, everyone would have to like say, okay, at this moment we're going to take one step to the left, go, you know. Like, I, yeah, I would. And love, I'm not thinking you know, that's going to happen. I wish I wish something like that could happen. <laughs> I'm not counting on that um, as the kind of strategy. Um, but I think incrementally, mm -hmm. you know, things happen. People read books and see buildings, and you know, things are, you know things do change pretty mm -hmm. quickly. So things can change quickly. At some point, like the tipping point will be reached, or something. Is what you're saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's going to be some some conditions imposed on us. Uh, you know, in the next couple decades where they, things just have to change quite radically. You just won't be able to blow, let's say, consume so much fossil fuels to treat to the sky as cool. a sewer. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. So I think some of those things will start to change pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So, so the current, I mean, so the way I see it, the current, even with the ex existing pedagogy, right, transitioning to some better system, the reality that a lot of people face once they graduate from those programs is like, I'm in this capital accumulation machine and I just want to have like a life and a family and you know this practice and and a lot of people aren't thinking with the foresight or like the overarching kind of narrative of how do I not only create this life for myself in this capitalist machine but how do I you know sort of point that to change right so there's that conscious capitalist kind of undertone there like how how do we, how do we start talking about that at, at the collegiate level where mm -hmm. these people are really learning how to be in the world that's what I'm interested in. Do you encounter that in your work? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, yeah, absolutely. I mean, part of my answer to that is, you know, if you want to have, have a job and have a family mm -hmm. and that sort of thing, like, I, I would imagine that you care about your kids. Mm -hmm. And yeah, uh, they're going to have a very difficult, they're going to be quite uncomfortable mm -hmm. uh, in this century. And that has to be a reality of, of having an ethics of care right now, mm -hmm. whether it's about your family or whatever. If you're just going to be a civilized person in society, you have to be aware of that. And so I don't think you can just, you know, have a job anymore mm, or something like that. You know, mm -hmm. so there are. But the just to be more direct about the, the course I'm teaching this semester mm -hmm. is called Energetics of Urbanization. And it's, I'm teaching it with Neil Brenner, who's this, um, you know, kind of critical urban theorist. Um, and geographer, um, and um, it's absolutely, it's only about the political economy, um, mm -hmm. so the kind of, let's say, the uh, regime of capitalist accumulation that you referenced is, is really important uh, to that, and um, it, it's, it, you know, it's very complicated, that's a whole other podcast, I'm yeah. sure, <laughs> um, but um, it's surprising um, what some of the in initial answers are, but um, if capitalism is a way, or was a, a new way of organizing nature, um, I think part of my thesis right now is that uh, we need to start thinking of capitalism as a, uh, a way of reorganizing entropy, and then I think we'll actually get somewhere. Mm -hmm. um, right, because it, currently it can't abide a limit, right? It just moves the problem around geographically, and exactly. like you see that through building material flows and yeah, yeah. the way that we structure it. But a lot of that has to do with how we misunderstand entropy. Yeah. Um, um, but you know, capitalism basically doesn't value, um, let's say, the energy that it requires to grow a tree or something like that. It's, it only values the two by four or something like that. Right. So that's why the Odom methodology is so important and why it's the only one I would advocate using, uh, because like life cycle analysis doesn't go far enough. Its system boundary still externalizes uh, a lot of energy that's required for the production of raw materials, like 
trees and mm -hmm. other you know other things that we might use in the building industry. So if we don't value that, if we continue to externalize it, then we'll still have this problem yeah. of kind of um, uneven distribution of of, of wealth. Um, right. But Odom's uh, methodology, he he was to some degree a Marxist. Um, yeah. It was based on the the energy methodology is based on. Um, what he would call real wealth. So the he calculated everything in terms of how much solar energy is in that tree, how much solar energy is in that car, how much solar energy is in that city. Mm -hmm. uh, so you can make meaningful comparisons. But it's right. a it's an argument about real wealth, which actually runs. It's a donor theory value, so it runs in the exact opposite of like the you know kind of monetary theory mm -hmm. of wealth. Um, yeah, and it's it's amazing when uh, you get into the the way I, I sort of interpreted it as I was working through. Uh, that book was sort of this idea of access, right? Like there is access to, that we all have to a given number of, I mean, you can call it privilege or however you want to approach it, but um, rethinking the kinds of access that we have to knowledge and to the quality of you know, energy inputs in, in the yeah. building, like that makes all the difference in, in how yeah. someone's life is going to, the trajectory of their entire existence. Yeah, access is a good um, term. Um, do you guys, work with, do you guys uh, read Bejan at all? I have not. Oh, okay, this is going to be a whole other thing. Great. So, uh, <laughs> Bejan's constructal theories, basically, I'm, I'm paraphrasing it. So, who is this person? Oh, he's a, he's the most cited um, mechanical engineer in, all, in right. all of, kind of, like, in the science world. Uh, he's a he's professor at Duke. Uh, and he's like Odom. He's one of these people who sort of peered into the universe in some way and understands some, you know, I think some fundamental laws. And, and There's also a link that you can read more about Adrian Bejan and his constructal law theory in the show notes. Spectacular yeah. ways, but his constructal law theory is basically that systems evolve such that they gain more and more access uh, to the flows moving through them. Mm -hmm. So you can think about like a. I always use the example of like a mango tree. Like they spread out their roots so that they get more and more access to the nutrients flowing mm -hmm. through that water, et cetera. But you'll see these kind of, they're basically always dendritic systems. And just think of a dendritic system like a dendritic cell, which we have in our immune system, in our brain, et cetera. And, you know, you can think about a thermally active surface as a kind of uh, way of gaining more and more access mm -hmm. to our radiant transfer of our physiology and stuff like that. But even our own body is is... You know how we distribute heat to our surface is is the same thing in reverse. Um, so it's pretty amazing. Like uh, Bejan is pretty fantastic. So access, I think, is key. But like on a pretty meta level, it's like sometimes totally right. physical, sometimes social. But uh, yeah, it's it's the right word. I think mm -hmm. one of the right words. Yeah. I didn't know this was going to get so heavy. And so getting back to the question, which was, um, how are we going to make this change happen in our society or in our system that delivers buildings to society? Interestingly, one of my, um, as I've grown up a little bit in age, I used to think I am going to start to make this change occur in this industry and I'm going to see it occur. Recently, I'm like, I'm gonna, I'm never gonna give up on this. I'm never gonna yeah. stop, and I'm not sure I'm gonna see it occur. But I, I had this maybe slightly cynical approach inwardly that said, society will eventually come asking these questions, and here we are, this small group today, saying, when you're ready for the answers, we're working on them now. Sure. Is that similar to where you're at with it? Like, because you talk about this coming um, 
You didn't say apocalypse, but you know. <laughs> Something's coming. Yeah. Part of my answer is that uh, part of it's just deeply selfish. Like, I just want to be comfortable in the yeah. Northeast in the winter. And so a lot of this research is just like, there you go. You know, how can I walk around a house in a t-shirt with, yeah. that, you know, with far less inputs? Yeah. You know? um, so in that sense, like, yeah, I will see it. And I do see it. Like, um, mm-hmm. and I've enjoyed a number of the buildings uh, that I've built. And I, you know, I, 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 I appreciate it on that level. Um, so you've seen the revolution already coming. Uh, yeah, but mm-hmm. it's, it's also just a... It's an evolution because there's also buildings in Rome that, like, you know, totally like clarified a whole lot of this for me, and you know, so it's also just looking back, and so mm-hmm. it's sort of you mean the hyper costs or something? Yeah, and it, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so um, I don't think it's like a big thing that's yet to come. I think it's something it's it's always been here, and sort of human knowledge has come and gone, and uh, but it's basically just modernity, just you know forced us to forget a whole bunch of principles that are really important and mm. so part of it's just relearning that um so i guess what i'm saying is it's already there we don't yeah. like it's, it's not something that i we have to like make happen it's it's already happening um but you know getting getting a building department and you know um you know probably you know some some jurisdictions in, in the United States will probably be very difficult for them to get there, but other parts of the world, it's already happening. So. Mm-hmm. Clarendon, Texas, that's where my family's from. Yeah, I so it might yeah. be very difficult there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Although, you know, some, you know, in some rural contexts, it's much easier. Like, I, I, I tend to build buildings in rural contexts because I can just talk to the building officials in a much more coherent way, mm-hmm. and they can, I can explain the principles, and they're kind of interested, and, you know, so my more interesting buildings are happening out in those oh, places cool. where... You know, you get a, a kind of a building inspector in a in a major city, and they think they know a lot, and they basically know the industry standards or something like that. And right. That's fine, but that's again, that's not going to be what moves us forward. Mm-hmm. So, um, but I do think built examples really go a long way. Yeah, and if you can get people to experience these sorts of things, that goes a long way. Mm-hmm. So, um, like once you experience, you know, radiant transfer, like people. Like, yeah, like you don't forget it, and you know it's very different, and people want it. Yeah. Okay, so for those of you who are wondering whether this is the Building Science Podcast, it is. <laughs> and Building Science is uh, bringing critical thought to buildings. And very quickly what we've done is we've realized, okay, it's not the technology, it's the will. It's the societal will to diffuse this, this nutrient of ideas through its ecosystem. And ironically, just now, Kimberly Llewellyn, who is a near and dear friend of Positive Energy, worked here forever, who now works for a manufacturer of really good mechanical systems. So Kimberly's got a question. I've got a question. So, so one, of my, one of my favorite um, articles in this book is by Yvonne Rupnik. Yeah. And um, the, the article is about the industrialization of housing. And in particular, he focuses on the time period between World War One and Two, and then just post-World War Two, right? And that was, I think, the first time that, that we saw a real push towards some industrialized process of housing. And it arose out of this uh, desperation, really, to come up with housing really quickly because it had, the housing stock had been decimated. Mm-hmm. You mean in like Europe. by the town, that kind of thing? No, I mean in Europe. I mean, that's, oh. that's what this is focusing on more. And so I'm wondering if you can connect that movement to what we're seeing now, which is another fairly strong push towards industrialized 
housing processes and modular. Could you speak to that? Yeah, and um, and Ivan's a really good friend. Ivan's a really good friend, and um, he has the same problem I do with names. Um, <laughs> Ivan's a really good friend, and um, he's still working on that, but on you know kind of contemporary. That was that was the focus of his uh, doctoral dissertation, the kind of historical component. But he's very much engaged, and he's doing a huge project on kind of global case studies of everything that's going on in Australia and Sweden and Japan, etc. Um, so those will be coming out, which will be that'll be part yeah. of um, you know the answer to your question. Wow, um, exciting! But um, and I, you know, I think we can in our minds we can conceptualize why that like the industrialization of construction like that makes sense to us. Mm -hmm. But um, and I like that because it will get it will raise questions of construction ecology more rapidly than you know, kind of more conventional approaches of of project delivery. So. Uh, there'll be a huge leap forward mm -hmm. at that moment as well. Um, and so I, I think it's, it's, it's fantastic. Um, I, I hope, I, can, I hope they continue to evolve though, because some of those building practices, even if the process is smarter, the buildings themselves aren't necessarily better um, in many cases. So there's still a lot of work to do on that. And you know, that the title of that book, uh, Building Systems, I, I think everybody saw that as like a kind of I guess as a noun, like it's a book about building systems, but we, we always intended it to be like, as it was an active, it was like, we, we are system builders rather than mm -hmm, just absolutely. designers of like implementers of building systems. So the whole intent was to start to see the world in that way, that we all need to kind of build these systems in a more intelligent way and design them in a more intelligent way. I think it lost. It's like the title doesn't always come across that way, but anyway, yeah. Well, another big constraint, you know, there's another actor involved, which is the owner. And one of the reasons Positive Energy is focused on residential is because we can get owner buy-in and then it's there. On these commercial buildings, or it can be harder um, because the owner has an asset and they want to generate other assets from it and they're going to sell it to a buyer, a consumer, an occupant of their condo, let's say. And currently those consumers don't ask for very much in terms of quality, just visual, spatial, maybe a little psychological ego stroking. And um, how do we get to owners as an industry? What do, what do we, how do we get to owners to get them to change their value preference systems? Yeah. <laughs> well, just to build on the question about like, industrializing construction, I think yeah. you need to industrialize care. Um, and Whoa. what I mean by that is that you basically Architects should have a kind of stated interest in most of these projects. Um, the more, I mean, like my own projects that I build for my clients, I also maintain them. And so the, the maintenance is, you know, so I'm not going to design a building that's going to fall apart or like this is all. So if I, if, if care is part of my. So the contractual relationship. Yeah. So care is part of that contractual relationship. So that changes a whole set of things. And so this is why I, I, I keep building small buildings is because I'm also like the supply chain designer and the janitor and all these things for that. Um, there's bigger versions of that, the best of which is Duval Decker in Mississippi. Amazing office. I, they're very good architects, but um, partly for economic reasons in the state of Mississippi. And, you know, they do, you know, university scale projects, you know, for... Uh, within the state. Obviously, Mississippi has, you know, more extreme economic cycles than most of us. Um, so they had to evolve a practice model that includes design, 
construction, which we know as kind of design and build models, but also they do maintenance for the University of Mississippi, mm. et cetera. Um, and that, I think that completely changes the whole, you know, kind of theory of how you design a building and, and in the right sort of way. So if we industrialize care and if architects mm. had, and engineers had invested, you know, an investment in the project and some vested interest in how it performs or how long it lasts or its maintenance cycles, then that would change a lot of these things overnight as well. So It's a feedback loop. It absolutely You're getting is, yeah. downstream feedback back yeah. to the designer. So, you know, with my students, with my architecture students, I tell them, you know, the only thing they're designing in school is how to design a building. They're not designing a single project, like, especially their thesis is a design of how they want to practice uh, in the world. And so wow. some of the best ones, my favorite one, this brilliant woman designer, Erin Ota, very talented. She you know, graduated from the GSD with two degrees, you know, top, top of her class, and went to AECOM in LA to work as a spec writer, because she wants to design all of these supply chains, right? Wow. And that's just, you know, that's where we're going to get agency, and that's how we're going to make some of these bigger changes that you're looking for. So if we continue to conceive of a model of the world in which we design buildings by build, you know, building by building, simulation by simulation, I'm pretty sure we will get nowhere. <laughs> but if, you know, if, like, exactly, if we start designing and building the whole system, and I think it's ready for it. I mean, there's nobody making all these kind of connections. It's, it's actually what Vitruvius said what an architect actually is, is somebody who knows a lot about all these sorts of things and makes the connections. So um, to some degree, we've been irresponsible in fiduciary terms by just designing buildings and just engineering buildings, et cetera. That, uh, so we, you know, we have to address all of those sorts of things. So mm -hmm. I think not only, um, and even if you're just a hardcore capitalist, uh, you can make a lot more money. I am not, uh, by the way. <laughs> yeah, but, but for these people who just want a job and make money or whatever, um, you can make a lot more money doing that sort of work than you can as an architect, for mm -hmm. sure. If you start taking on some of these adjacent disciplines or you know adjacent markets or whatever you want right. to think about. But it is an exclusive activity, right? Like where it's, it's negating so much of the picture that's just still begging to be answered. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, you know, as architects just become kind of, you know, exterior decorators of uh, developers pro formas, like, <laughs> then there's, there's not much left in that, right? Uh -huh. So there, we have to start making some other change. And if, if you want to call it some other discipline, I'm happy to do that. If it's no longer engineering and architecture and construction or something like that, that interesting. I'm what what might we call it? I don't know, like sane collective living or something. Like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But on that note, it's it's yeah. important to notice that both professions are converging again. They were going apart mm. for so long. Mm. I mean, they were one yeah. in hundreds of years ago. Mm. Vitruvius. <laughs> yeah. There we are. Then we like sort of artificially separated mm. them to like, yeah, curtain wall designers and those who make it stand. Yeah. And then now we're like, oh, it would be smart to put them together, which is really just going back to the roots and understand that everything is one. And so I think on top of what, what you just said, the education, the, the, the responsibility that we have to our students to tell them that you're not in the silo you know, of, of designing the HVAC systems, but you actually have to talk to the architect. Yeah. And the architect has to talk to the whatever mechanical system, structural system designer, and even doctors, like, you know, this is how you are happening in the building. That is a much bigger pull and push, sorry, mm -hmm. for, for the yeah. industry. If the, all, everybody gets educated in this level, and that's responsibility for the accreditation boards, for the professors, 
for those who inspect the buildings, um, then you have like a revolution from the bottom up, mm -hmm. and at the same time, marketing for the good systems mm -hmm. uh, right. to the pole. Yeah. And then there's nothing in between anymore. And you can argue as much as you want, but if there's a pull from the people who want it because it's better, because we have educated them, and you have the people who can supply them, then they will find a way to make money off it, and then you're done. And you know, I, I think yeah, there's I think there's there are good things happening in yeah. schools and pedagogy, um, and you know, within that, I, one way to sort of force this kind of convergence, which is the kind of you know part of that title of that yeah. book. Um, I just think there's a lot to be gained by making much more simple buildings, you know, so rather than, you know, 12 layers yeah, in our yeah. walls, and, but part of that is that if an architect has to know everything that six inches of wood can do, and it can do structural, thermal, you know, ecology work, like, it, it, it's really profound what it can do, if, they, if they're forced to understand all of that, then they have to develop more meaningful relationships with material scientists and engineers and you know uh, people in the trades, everybody. Um, so that's one reason I, I teach that is if you know if they can do a wall with one or two materials, they are obligated to know a lot more about that. But right now, architects basically know nothing about what's going on in those walls. All they know is that they have to add yet another layer of petroleum sheet, you know, and for something like vapor, and then something else for air, and. Yeah. Basically, now it's gotten to the point where you have to add another consultant for every one of those layers, and probably another lawsuit for every one of those <laughs> layers, uh, and that's messing up how they're organizing their drawings and like it's getting totally out Changing of Changing their mental focus. Yeah. 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 So if you you know if you really can learn what you know for me in the Northeast it's just wood is it's the only ecological building mm -hmm. material in my mind, um, and so just learning everything about that, um, which has been my focus for you know ten years, is like just. It's pretty amazing what what it does for the building, but also how it changes sort of um, conventional assumptions about practice relationships mm -hmm. and contracts. Could we go down a level, get more crunchy on that? What, what, what tell us what you mean about using wood? I mean, you mean like a massive, somewhat monolithic assembly based on wood? Yeah, like really um, basically inefficient uses of wood in a, in a kind of conventional sense. Um, so the maybe more, the one I talk about the most is the called the stack house in Colorado and it's just six by eight spruce timbers just stacked up and that's the wall and it's the only layer it's the only material in that whole system and it's and so the outdoor outdoor component gets attacked by microbes and moisture and yeah and it's partly because there's just so much redundancy there mm -hmm. um, but it's structure it's enclosure it's air water barriers it's what finished materials it's what architects call insulation and um, it's pretty amazing how it performs and does all of those things but wood definitely has all those capacities there are a few other materials <laughs> that I think you know can can you can do a with you know legitimate um, load-bearing masonry wall um, well, pretty much in any climate mm -hmm. um, I think so there's a few of those materials that I, I think you know we tend to think of as dumb materials mm -hmm. uh, but it's we have no idea what mm -hmm. wood does mm -hmm. or what it could be doing so uh, it takes a while to really sort all of that out on a, on a fine grain level. So, um, yeah, but woods, wood is amazing. Really. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can feel my bias, right? Yeah. You know, the, the career I've had in this industry, I can just feel my brain reacting of, what, you mean just right out here, I'm going to just put a wood box and I'm going to live in it and it's going to rot? And then I realized, well, that's what I have. Right? <laughs> yeah. 1920s building yeah. with wood siding yeah. and wood studs. And, and, right, that's but, what, Yeah, but I, you know, like, 
the typical lumber framed building system you know just a, it does everything wrong mm -hmm. with, with wood in my mind but mm -hmm. uh, yeah but a, a, a pile of wood that you know you can do a lot with that um, Fascinating. Um, and you know it's just like in Colorado all of that wood is it's all beetle kill wood so oh. um, part of it um, from a forestry point of view is just uh, let's say you know because that beetle kills dying off because of the climate change so part of it is like all of that wood should be harvested and put to some sort of use mm -hmm. um, in order to make way for the next species mm -hmm. that will be tolerant for the next climate and mm -hmm. you know stabilize the slope and do all the things that you know trees do and that sort of thing so um, you know as you're designing this wood building, you're also designing this other sort of, you know, process. So, you know, I work with foresters as well as the guys at the mill and all that sort of stuff. I think that's all, like designing all of those relationships is, is super key. So, yeah. If you're an architect and you feel poked in the eye by any of this, please write us and prove <laughs> us wrong. We would love nothing more. Okay, well, thank you guys for listening and thank you, Kyle, for coming and Zoltan for being here and Kimberly as well. This yeah. has been a really... Uh, Oh, what would I say? Mind-opening conversation. My That's mind is going in many different directions. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you.